0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. In this second and final episode on Dr. Harvey Cushing, we will delve into his career and life's work, first back at Johns Hopkins, then at Bent Brigham Hospital and Harvard in Boston, as well as his experiences in the First World War. We'll also cover some of his non-surgical works, and of course, Consider his legacy to medicine and surgery. We've got lots to cover, so let's get started on the second of two episodes on Harvey Cushing on Legends of Surgery. When we ended with the last episode, Cushing had finished his year in Europe, learning from the Masters, with mixed results. Now, we'll cover his career, which is of course a massive undertaking, so we won't be able to get into great detail on everything. His life certainly lends itself into a fairly neat timeline, with specific events and locations, so let me give an outline right off the top. His return to Johns Hopkins lasted until 1912, when he moved to Boston to join the newly built Bent Brigham Hospital and join the faculty at Harvard. During that period, his major focus was on the pituitary gland, so we'll cover that in some depth. Not long after starting in Boston, he would be called into service in the First World War, and he kept meticulous record of his experiences, so we'll get into that to some degree. Upon returning, his career focus was on intracranial, or inside the skull, tumors, which he culminated near his retirement with his 2,000th case. Finally, we'll talk about his retirement, death, and legacy. Obviously, he continued doing all manner of neurosurgical cases throughout his career, but this allows us to cover his major accomplishments in a logical way. And as always, I'll sprinkle in some other interesting tidbits and tangents as we go along. So in September of 1901, he returned to Baltimore at the age of 32 to become Associate Professor of Surgery at Johns Hopkins and was placed in full charge of neurosurgical cases and made the Director of the Hunterian Experimental Surgery Laboratory Known as the Doghouse. In 1902, he married a childhood acquaintance named Catherine Stone Crowell on June 10th. They stayed together until his death and had five children together. Very early on, he established himself as a leader in neurosurgery. Asked to contribute 80 pages on neurological surgery for a five volume edition of the textbook Surgery in 1906, Cushing instead submitted 800 pages. This got whittled down to a 276 page monograph with 154 illustrations done by Cushing himself and was published in 1908 as Surgery of the Head becoming the textbook of neurosurgery. Although he had many areas of interest, this early stage of his career included developing interest in the pituitary gland. So let's take a minute to talk about the pituitary gland. This is a pea-sized gland that sits at the base of the brain in a little bony recess called the cella turcica, Latin for Turkish saddle because of its shape, and produces hormones. Fun fact, the name comes from the Latin pituitarius, which means mucus because for centuries, anatomists thought its role was to excrete brain wastes through the nasal cavities. Now, given its location, no surgeon would touch it, and no one really knew what it did. And we now know that it's divided into an anterior and posterior lobe, and secretes hormones that control all manner of body functions, which are many and we won't get into. But in Cushing's time, it was a mystery. The term hormone wasn't even coined until June of 1905 by the English physiologist Ernst Henry Starling. He borrowed the Greek word harmon, meaning that which sets in motion. Now Cushing initially experimented with dogs to work out techniques and try to figure out the function of the pituitary gland. His great insight was that tumors could either destroy the gland, reducing its secretion of hormones, or the tumor itself could produce excess hormones. This would lead to very different clinical presentations. So during his time at Hopkins, Cushing operated on 37 patients for pituitary disorders, beginning in 1905. Initially, he did palliative subtemporal decompressions, meaning entering from the side of the head to simply relieve the pressure of enlarging tumors but not remove them. He then attempted the so-called subfrontal or transcranial approach, basically through the forehead, with poor results. Cushing became instrumental in popularizing the transphenoidal approach, first developed in Europe, which is basically to go from the front of the face and through the sphenoid bone, from the Greek sphen, meaning wedge. I'll put up a picture on Twitter. Cushing eventually modified his technique to take on a sublabial, submucosal, transeptal approach, which translated means an incision was made in the mouth under the upper lip. This approach is still used today. The other common approach is endonasal or through the nose. Cushing performed his first transphenoidal surgery on March 26, 1909, on a patient referred to him by Charles Mayo of the Mayo Clinic. The patient was a 38 year old farmer with acromegaly, which is a disease of excess growth hormone after puberty and he removed a part of the pituitary tumor. The patient lived another 21 years. In Atlantic City in 1909, Cushing delivered the oration on surgery at the 60th annual meeting of the American Medical Association called, quote, The Hypothesis Cerebri, Clinical Aspects of Hyperpituitarism and Hypopituitarism. By 1912, he had published a 322-page monograph called The Pituitary Body and Its Disorders, describing 52 patients with symptoms referable to the pituitary gland and is credited with the terms hypo- and hyperpituitarism, likely influenced by his teacher Halstead's work on hypo- and hyperthyroidism. Basically, his studies of the pituitary and its function contributed greatly to the field of endocrinology, and he had more operative experience than anyone in the world, making him one of the world authorities on the pituitary gland. However, his greatest contribution to understanding of the pituitary gland and its function would come near the end of his career, but we'll get to that later. In the late 1920s, he actually switched back to the subfrontal or transcranial approach, one of the earlier methods in pituitary surgery, stating that it allowed better exposure and more reliable improvement of visual symptoms. His influence was so great that this shifted practice in American neurosurgery, and the transfuneral approach was abandoned for decades, Reemerging in the 1950s mainly by French neurosurgeon Gerard Guillaume. Both are still used today. Now, around 1910, Cushing was offered the head of surgery at the new Brigham Hospital and the position of Mosley Professor of Surgery at Harvard, They hoped he would be their surgical messiah to build up their medical university. By mid-May of 1910, he declared his intentions, but didn't move to Boston until the building was much further along in construction in September of 1912, where he would remain until 1933. So a little bit of background on the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital. Brigham started by peddling oysters from a wheelbarrow, and eventually amassed millions in real estate. After his death in 1877, he directed that his estate be allowed to accumulate for 25 years, and then be used to establish a hospital for the poor folk of Suffolk County, Massachusetts. It was intended to be a university hospital based on the model of the Johns Hopkins. Of interest, Florence Nightingale, see podcast 16, provided the architectural concept based on her Crimean War experience. The idea was to have separate pavilions joined by a connecting walkway. Now, when World War I broke out, America initially stayed out of the fighting. However, many medical people got involved early, including Cushing's friend and colleague, Dr. George Kreil. His group of volunteers from the Lakeside Hospital, Western Reserve University in Cleveland, were the first to go by the end of December 1914 to serve at the Ambulance Americaine in Paris, an American-run special hospital for wounded soldiers. Crowell wrote to Cushing to ask if he'd be interested in going next with a Harvard unit. Initially reluctant to disrupt his work and research, Cushing agreed, feeling it was his duty as chief of surgery to lead the group. Thirteen surgeons and four nurses set sail on March 22, 1915, taking over 160 beds at the Ambulance American upon arrival in Paris. Cushing's first impression of war and medical care seems as relevant today as it did then, quote, Society dotes on the excitement of war and loves to provide, however badly, for the wounded, particularly if they are presentable and can be wheeled in at afternoon tea, end quote. Amazingly, Cushing met up with some other surgical giants, including Alexis Carell, see podcast 20, who helped him tour the war front and showed him his work with Dakin studying wounds. His old mentor, Theodore Coker, supplied Swiss nurses to help him get set up. By April of 1915, Cushing was operating frequently, usually but not always on neurosurgical patients. He saw shattered skulls and jaws and extracted fragments of shells, bone, and clothing from head wounds. As I mentioned in the last podcast, x-rays were now being used to locate metal fragments in the skull. Cushing also experimented with electromagnets to remove these metal pieces, an area of study the French had begun at the same hospital. In one case, he used a six-inch nail, to make contact with a fragment deep in a soldier's brain, then magnetized the nail and drew out the shrapnel. After touring British military hospitals and visiting his old friend William Osler in England, Cushing returned home in May of 1915, but this was not the end of his service. In September of 1915, Cushing received a request from the U.S. Army's Surgeon General to become formally involved in medical preparedness. He was placed in charge of the Harvard University Base Hospital, known as Base Hospital No. 5. Cushing was commissioned as a major in the U.S. Army Medical Corps on May 5th, 1917 and on may 11th 1917 his unit sailed from new york on the munitions ship the ss saxonia en route to england the team crossed the english channel on may 30th to take over a british tent hospital on the french coast in less than ideal conditions with minimal equipment by the summer he was moved to the front lines to a casualty clearing station including during the battle of passchendaele where he did hundreds of operations in fact to save time cushing would have patients prepped on one table while operating on another so he could switch instantly between cases. At peak times, Cushing might do up to eight craniotomies, opening the skull, per day. Sadly, a personal tragedy befell Cushing. On August 29th, during the Third Battle of Ypres, he got a message from a nearby American neurosurgeon that Revere Osler, son of his good friend William, was seriously wounded and lay just a few miles away. Although he, George Crile, and two other surgeons operated on the 21-year-old that night, Revere died the next morning. By November of that year, Cushing was moved to Boulogne, a channel port, to operate on the British No. 13 General Hospital, interestingly located in a casino. Around this time, he got in a bit of trouble with the British censor, charged with twice violating the rules of censorship. In letters he sent home to his wife, Kate, one contained passages from an ordinary soldier's letter, and a second held a harsh criticism of a British surgeon. He accidentally mailed them instead of his usual practice of sending the letters home with traveling friends to avoid the censors. It was forgotten after he wrote a letter of apology, but he was transferred to be under American command. On June 8th of 1918, he was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel. He worked at the American Expeditionary Forces Hospital at Neuf Chateau, France, to be Chief Neurosurgical Consultant and attained the rank of Colonel on October 28th, 1918. Although he took on a more important leadership role in organizing the Army Medical Headquarters and its activities, he continued to operate at a feverish pace, and he actually wound up developing a fever. This was likely a case of influenza that was epidemic among the armies known as the Spanish flu, although the origin is still debated, it would go on to kill around 50 million people, more than the number killed during World War I, making it the most devastating epidemic in recorded world history. Cushing did recover from the illness, but developed Guillain-Barre syndrome, and had to recoup during the rest of the war. Guillain-Barre syndrome is a rare disorder, typically following an infectious illness, causing inflammation of the peripheral nerves, meaning not the brain or spinal cord, leading to numbness and weakness of the legs, arms, and even breathing muscles and face. During his convalescence, he wrote the story of U.S. Army Base Hospital No. 5 by, quote, a member of the unit, end quote, which was published by the Harvard University Press in 1919. Cushing stayed in Europe for a few months after the war, then returned to the U.S. on February 19th of 1919. He was discharged from the service on April 9th, 1919, and in 1923 was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal by the U.S. Army. Back at Brigham, Cushing struggled to regain his skills after the exhaustion of war and illness. Yet he would go on to make Brigham Hospital world-renowned as a mecca of neurosurgery. His day-to-day work was brain tumors, abscesses, and cysts, with the occasional ganglionectomy. Remember, that's the operation I described in the last podcast. Let's focus on his work on brain tumors, as this was the culmination of his career achievements. His work going after lesions inside the skull started during his time on staff at Johns Hopkins. Before him, the death rates of failure and death were would make few attempted after the first few cases. At the time, brain tumors were considered inoperable, and the mortality rate for procedures involving opening of the skull was around 90%. Prior to Cushing, there had only been two attempts at removing brain tumors at Hopkins. Both did not end well. But he would become the first surgeon in history who could open what he referred to as the closed box of the skull. He started cautiously and between 1905 and 1910. His signature operation was a subtemporal decompression, meaning opening the skull at the side to relieve pressure to alleviate symptoms but not cure. By 1910, he gave an address called the Special Field of Neurological Surgery five years later and was receiving brain tumor cases from around the country and training residents. In 1909, there were 64 brain tumor cases referred to Hopkins, more than the 20 previous years combined. In 1910, he reported a mortality rate of only 13% for brain tumors and by 1914, in a series of 140 cases, it was down to 8%. His reasons for the better results were perfection of anesthesia, scrupulous technique, ample expenditure of time, and painstaking closure of wounds without external drains. As part of that scrupulous technique, Cushing invented the first vascular clips known as silver clips, or Cushing clips, for arteries to stop bleeding, a major cause of mortality in brain surgery. He made small hooks out of pieces of wire and would put them around arteries, If they bled, he could pinch them together to stop the blood loss. He also advocated meticulous approximation of the gallia aponeurotica during closure of the operative wound, meaning suturing closed the tough fibrous layer that covers the skull as part of the scalp. Gallia is Latin for helmet-shaped structure. Cushing considered this one of his greatest contributions to neurosurgery, and he kept meticulous records of all of his cases. Cushing was an excellent artist and made drawings immediately after surgery, which became part of his reports. Can you imagine doing that now? Using these records, he helped to develop a classification system of gliomas, a type of brain tumor, and was able to accurately localize tumors in an era before imaging, using the history and physical exam only. Around 1916, Cushing decided to undertake a major study of acoustic neuromas, a rare benign tumor that arises on a major nerve between the brain and inner ear, which is deep in the brain and near many important structures, making it very difficult to reach surgically. In 1917, he reported on 29 cases in the famous paper Tumors of the Nervous Acousticus and the Syndrome of the Cerebellopontine Angle, the largest reported series ever at the time. Not only was he able to describe accurately their presentation, which was deafness in one ear, ringing called tinnitus, and dizziness called, called vertigo, he also described a new surgical approach and patient positioning that greatly increased success of removal and reduced mortality. Many of Cushing's contributions were not directly surgical as i mentioned in part one william osler one of the founding fathers of Johns hopkins and considered by many to be the father of modern medicine was a mentor and close personal friend of cushing after his death in 1919 Osler's widow grace asked cushing to write his biography he returned to england in the summer of 1920 to gather his papers and conduct interviews staying for six weeks he then worked on it diligently eventually publishing the life of sir william osler in 1925 through the oxford university press in two large volumes. He then won the Pulitzer Prize for biography or autobiography in 1926. Quick aside on the history of the Pulitzer Prize. The awards were established in 1917 as bequeathed in the will of Joseph Pulitzer, a Hungarian-born newspaper publisher of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the New York World, along with money to start a journalism school at Columbia University in New York City. In late 1926, Cushing started experimenting with William Bovey, a researcher at Harvard, using his electrosurgery machine now, I cover this in depth in podcast 7, but the idea is that this device used electricity to stop bleeding, a major problem when operating on the brain. Cushing quickly realized its potential, allowing him to operate on cases he normally wouldn't be able to, especially meningiomas, which are tumors that arise from the meninges, the tissues that cover the central nervous system, and tend to be quite vascular. He said of the Bovie machine, quote, I am succeeding in doing things inside the head that I never thought it would be possible to do, end quote another one of his contributions to medicine near the end of his career was a recognition of what we now call Cushing ulcers. In 1931, he presented a paper at the University of Toronto called the Balfour Lecture, after Donald Balfour, a Canadian general surgeon, called Peptic Ulcers and the Interbrain. In it, he describes the association between patients with intracranial lesions, especially in what is known as the hypothalamic region, which is deep at the base of the brain, and stomach ulcers. It was published in 1932 in Surgery, Gynecology, and Obstetrics, now called the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. Cushing's ulcers are now recognized to be due to increased intracranial pressure from a number of causes, which lead to increased stomach acid, creating ulcers in the stomach or duodenum, either by overstimulating the vagus nerve or blocking the sympathetic system. Now, one of the things most people in medicine may be familiar with is Cushing's syndrome. Again, it was through his vast clinical experience that he recognized a distinct clinical presentation far back as 1912, he noticed that some patients would present with a constellation of symptoms, including abdominal obesity, a fat lump between the shoulders, muscle weakness, weak bones, and skin discoloration, among other things. He called it polyglandular syndrome. He had a patient on the ward that fit the description who was found to have a pituitary tumor at autopsy. Other patients had tumors of the adrenal gland, and this led him to figure out the connection between the pituitary gland and the adrenal gland. Publishing this in the Johns Hopkins Hospital Bulletin in 1932 under the title, quote, The Basophil Adenomas of the Pituitary Body and Their Clinical Manifestations, end quote, this almost immediately was labeled Cushing's Syndrome, which we now know is due to excess hormone called cortisol or corticosteroid. When the syndrome is caused by the adrenal gland or by prescriptions of steroids, it's called Cushing's Syndrome. When specifically caused by a pituitary tumor, it's called Cushing's Disease, Now, amazingly, Harvey Cushing himself never operated on anyone for this. During his time in the war, Cushing noticed something called claudication. This is a symptom of peripheral vascular disease, where the blood vessels that feed the lower limbs get narrowed, and the legs get crampy pain with exercise. Claudication comes from the Latin claudicare to limp. This is often related to smoking, which Cushing did his entire life. By the winter of 1931, his peripheral vascular disease got worse. Admitted to his own hospital, Cushing would roll his wheelchair into the OR and operate sitting down with a gown tied over his pajamas. Part of what drove him to continue to operate was that he was approaching 2,000 cases of verified tumors. The 2,000th case was on a 31-year-old woman with a pituitary tumor done April 15, 1931. Cushing presented his life's work on brain tumors at the First International Neurological Congress in Bern, Switzerland in the summer of 1931. Cushing then agreed to become the Sterling Professor of Neurology at Yale, his alma mater, starting in October of 1933. He took the position in part for the salary to recoup some of the losses suffered from the stock market crash, which severely damaged his finances. But he did so a bit reluctantly, as he did have a hard time letting go, which is understandable given the fact that he had become a living legend at Brigham. Staying at Yale until 1937, Cushing didn't do any major research, had put down the scalpel for good, and did not teach. His poor health, including the development of a gastric ulcer and the worsening of his vascular problems in his feet and legs, limited his activities. He was still productive, though, establishing a brain tumor registry of his 2,000 tumors and sorting out their tissue types. He also managed to summarize his memoirs from the war in a publication called From a Surgeon's Journal, published in 1936. Wouldn't you love to read that? As well, he synthesized his knowledge of the brain tumors called meningiomas in an 800-page tome that was an instant classic, a masterpiece of neurosurgery which was published in 1938. It would be his last published work as a neurosurgeon. By 1937, he had to retire again due to Yale's mandatory retirement rule and was given the honorary title of Director of Studies in Medical History. Cushing was nominated for the Nobel Prize multiple times between 1934 and 1936, but amazingly did not win. Dr. Harvey Williams Cushing died in 1939 in New Haven, Connecticut at the age of 70. He was working on a book on Andreas Vesalius, the 16th century Belgian anatomist and physician who revolutionized medical illustration, one of Cushing's many interests. On October 3rd, while lifting a heavy edition of one of Vesalius's anatomy texts, he felt significant chest pain, and by the next morning an ambulance was called. Cushing was diagnosed with a myocardial infarction, or a heart attack. He lived for a few more days, passing at 2.30 a.m. on October 7th, 1939. His autopsy revealed a colloid cyst of the third ventricle, a benign lesion in the brain. He was cremated and the ashes were buried in the family plot in Lakeview Cemetery, Cleveland, Ohio, his hometown. The book on Vesalius was published posthumously in 1943. Now, it would be impossible to fully document Harvey Cushing's impact on medicine and surgery, but he left an indelible mark on the medical world. In addition to his own publications I've already mentioned, he donated 8,000 books to Yale which became part of Yale's Medical Historical Collection, now known as the Harvey Cushing-John Hay Whitney Medical Library. Although his brain tumor registry never took off as he'd hoped, with the next generation of neurosurgeons carefully curating and adding to it, his descriptions contributed greatly to early understanding of brain tumor types and their behaviors. The registry was rediscovered in the 1990s and preserved for historical posterity. His teaching legacy could be measured by the number of heads of surgery around the United States and Canada that he had trained. From 1911 to 1932, Cushing trained 22 residents in neurosurgery. Many of these would go on to have well-known careers of their own, with Walter Dandy being the most famous. Dandy was his student in the Hunterian lab, and throughout his life, he was very competitive with his mentor, having a very love-hate relationship, he might be an interesting future podcast subject. Cushing not only essentially single-handedly created the surgical specialty of neurosurgery, but helped to establish it as a legitimate branch of medicine by bringing together like-minded surgeons to work together. In 1920, Cushing and Ernest Sachs, another neurosurgeon, founded the Society of Neurological Surgeons to provide a semi-formal group to meet regularly and discuss common problems, not unlike his earlier Society of Clinical Surgery, which I'll talk more about in the next podcast on George Kreil, his co-founder. There were only 10 founding members, and total membership was limited to 45 by statute. But by 1931, they had only 29 members, Younger neurosurgeons, excluded from this group, formed the Harvey Cushing Society with the first meeting being held in Boston on May 6, 1932. Cushing himself expressed his approval and invited the group to hold their first meetings at his clinic. The society continued to grow and became the American Association of Neurological Surgeons in 1967. Today it has more than 10,000 members worldwide. Harvey Cushing was known as a demanding man, holding everyone to an exacting standard, His sole focus was the patient, and everything else was secondary, even his wife and kids. A Baltimore surgeon named Bertram Bernheim, who had trained in the Hunterian lab in New Cushing, said this, quote, Not many men down here liked him. Not, that is, in the way they liked Dr. Finney. He rode roughshod over them and was ruthless. Yet, he had his moments, and could be as charming and delightful as anyone else. Only, there weren't many such moments. Chiefly, I suspected, because he was so tense and so occupied in mind, with so many different things that one and the same time. I could never understand how he stood at all, physically. Yet tired, jumpy, bitterly critical, frightfully busy, if you caught him just right, he'd give you hours of his time and spare no pains to orient and instruct you. Tough hombre, yeah, but one of America's immortals, End quote. Here's Cushing's own words on his philosophy of life, writing to his son in February of 1926, quote, life all around is a kind of sporting event and the best any of us can do is to try continually to improve our game, end quote. Now let me close with a great anecdote from Cushing's early days at Hopkins, and one that shows a rarely seen lighter side of a surgical giant. He once exchanged notes with his friend Dr. William McCallum on Paris, writing, quote, Let us meet at the top of the Eiffel Tower 10 years from now on July 4th at 2 in the afternoon and continue this conversation, end quote. McCallum actually remembered to go to Paris on the appointed date, but when he reached the top of the Eiffel Tower, no one was there. A guide suggested that he should go up the iron staircase before leaving, and McCallum went there. He was greeted by a smiling Cushing who said, quote, Well, Willie, I had almost despaired of you getting here, end quote. Now, before wrapping up, I'd like to acknowledge Michael Bliss, who wrote an amazing biography called Harvey Cushing, A Life in Surgery. If anyone didn't get enough of Harvey Cushing from these two podcasts, I'd highly recommend it. And in a sad coincidence, he passed away just yesterday. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time, I'll talk about the history of the Cleveland Clinic and one of its founders, Dr. George Washington Crile. The Crile mosquito clamp bears his name. Now, for now, please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to Legends of Surgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.